You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Good morning, everybody. My name is Chuy Rodriguez. And uh, before we start, I just want to, uh, they're not here, but um, I want to mention that the music's welcome uh, Elijah Michael music, and he was, yeah, he was born uh, this week, and he weighed eight pounds and one ounce, and he was 20 inches, so he's probably going to be tall like his dad, um, but yeah, we're, we're happy. Every child that is born is a blessing to our church and to, uh, to families. We're happy to celebrate that together, and uh, hopefully we'll have a lot of dedication soon, and that's going to be awesome. Uh, all right, so let's jump into our text this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, v- verses 18 to uh, all the way to 33. And uh, for those who are new, uh, or if you don't know, uh, we typically preach in a way that is uh, called uh, expository preaching. It basically means we take books of the Bible, we walk through them, and we try to explain or learn from uh, the books of the Bible in the order they were written. So today we actually come to a, a section on, on marriage. And it's not because I chose it, it's what's happening next. Um, and we're going to spend some time in this text today. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1, uh, 18 through uh, 33. So let me go ahead and read it. Um, but before that, I need to pray. God, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for everyone who is here. Um, Thank you for the gift of life that all these children and babies are to us. I pray that you would bless them, bless the musics, and everyone who has a baby in their house. It is hard. It's time-consuming, and I pray that you will help the parents, give them strength, and also uh, keep those babies healthy and growing um, in every way. Uh, Lord, I pray that today your word would lead us to become more like you. I pray that your word would shape us, uh, sanctify us, challenge us. Uh, But I also pray that your word would bring comfort and love and peace and hope uh, to our hearts. Holy Spirit, move in us. Open our minds and our hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So it says, Ephesians 5, 18 and on. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, or debauchery, I don't know how you pronounce that, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always uh, and for everything to to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love, should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right. Um, I chose to, to begin this section that's typically preached starting in verse 21, and I chose to, to bring it back to verse 18. But the reality is that the text does not necessarily start in verse either 21 or 18. This is, this is a continuation of what Paul has been saying since the beginning of, of, of chapter 5, and even before that, it's sort of an outworking of unity within the body. So one of the things we're going to notice is that Paul establishes, and I've, I've said this several times, everything that we're going to do, he's established or he builds upon the gospel. If you look at chapter, one, verse five, uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, he lays out again the gospel. So he's gonna, he immediately starts telling us to imitate God in a specific way, in a way that is according to the gospel. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as fragrant offering, offering and sacrifice to God. So again, remember, Paul spent three chapters laying out the foundation of what we're going to do. And now the last three chapters, uh, he moves on to tell us how to live in light of that. And he's doing it again. He's telling us that everything we do should be done as Christ. In fact, he's going to move on later to talk to the husbands and say, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Everything that we're going to be uh, called to do is, again, based on the gospel. And I don't think I've done this before, but I want to do this. What is the gospel? So there, we refer to the gospel a lot, and I want to just summarize it in this way. This is my sort of working definition of the gospel. I say that the gospel is the good news of what God has done and is doing through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the whole world to bring salvation to sinners. So the gospel is first and foremost good news for all of us who are sinners about how God saves us and loves us. So he's going to continue to tell us how to work this out or how does the gospel look in different areas of our lives. And today specifically, is how does, the, how does the gospel look in marriage or in the relationship between husband and wives? We believe that the gospel is the primary uh, message of our faith. We believe that we are evangelical because the evangel is the word for the gospel is what is our message, that is our foundation. And everything we do starts, runs through, and ends in the gospel. And that is important for us to highlight because nothing that you're going to hear in this church is about how you can accomplish on your own strength so that you can earn salvation. No. 
Everything that you're going to listen to is how does Christ help you through the gospel to live in light of the gospel so that the gospel will culminate with our salvation and eternal marriage with God and becoming again one with him in eternity. Uh, and that's the mystery that Paul actually refers to at the end. We're, it's not that we're going to become one person, but we're going to actually live together with our husband, Jesus, at the end of the age. So for us, the gospel is everything. It's not just the A of the ABCs of Christianity. It's A to Z is the gospel. So again, everything we're going to talk about is based or fi finds its foundation in the gospel. So now we start in verse 18. The first thing that we see Paul says is do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Quick question, is it debauchery or debauchery? Cherry, is this a rule? Nobody else says it in a different way in any other country, are you sure? All right, debauchery. Okay, thank you for that. Um, if anybody has a, a list of the rules of English, please send it to me. <laughs> Adam has something like that. All right, so the first thing that Paul says is do not get drunk with wine. And this is important because uh, most scholars agree that what Paul is about to say uh, depends on this phrase. Uh, so the first thing we notice is that Paul basically lays a foundation saying, what I'm about to say is actually a result of you being filled with the Spirit. Or in other ways, what I'm about to ask you to do is something that is going to require superhuman strength to, to be done. And this is not just my uh, Pentecostal-leaning interpretation. In fact, Timothy Keller, who's not a Pentecostal by any means, uh, actually agrees with me. And one of the books that I mostly like is uh, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And he literally says this, and, and I want to read uh, a paragraph of uh, this book that he lays out. He says, the introductory statement for Paul's famous paragraph on marriage in Ephesians is verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In English, this is usually rendered as a separate sentence, but that hides from its readers an important point that Paul is making. In the Greek text, verse 21 is the last clause in the long previous sentence in which Paul describes several marks of a person who is filled with the Spirit. The last mark of spiritfulness is, in this last clause, it is a loss of pride and self-will that leads a person to humbly serve others. Now listen to this. From this spirit and power submission, verse 21, Paul moves to the duties of wives and husbands. Modern Western readers immediately focus on, and often bristle at, the word submit. Because for us, it touches the controversial issues of gender roles. But to start arguing about that is a mistake that will be fatal to any true grasp of Paul's introductory point. He is declaring that everything he is about to say about marriage assumes that the parties are being filled with God's spirit. Well, that preaches on its own. So, Paul is calling us to be filled with the spirit. What does it mean? And I know there's confusion about what does the filling of the Spirit is. Uh, that, this is something I had to wrestle with as I was developing my own theology. I grew up believing a specific way of the baptism of the Spirit versus the filling of the Spirit and all those 
uh, topics about the Spirit. So I just want just to make sure we are all in the same page. When we talk about being filled with the Spirit, we're not talking about the baptism of the Spirit. And the baptism of the Spirit, at least us, we do not believe that it's uh, something that happens to you several times and that its evidence is speaking, speaking in tongues. I don't believe that. I don't think necessarily that the Bible makes that case. I believe that the baptism of the Spirit is what 1 Corinthians 12, 13 actually says. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So, our perception of the baptism of the Spirit is something that happens when you become a Christian. It's the sealing of the Spirit, it's the indwelling of the Spirit, it's when you become uh, a person regenerated, alive, to respond to the gospel, and that's something that happens once in your life. And it happens to all believers. Then, we move on to the filling of the Spirit, and Paul says here, be filled with the Spirit. Now, take, take into account that Paul is writing to Christians. So he's assuming that these people have already been baptized in the Spirit. They have been sealed in this or with the Spirit. In fact, he, he said that in, 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 in chapter 1. But now he's calling them to be filled. Filling is something that could happen many times during, during your life. One example of this is actually Mark 13. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's telling them that they're going to be persecuted in the last times. And he says, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. And Jesus tells them, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So that is an example of what we would assume or think of as the filling of the Spirit. And this, what Paul is doing here is an analogy between losing yourself or becoming intoxicated with a substance that will lead you to sin. And Paul, what he's doing is do, saying the same thing, but in the opposite. Instead of losing yourself to alcohol or basically any other substance that makes you lose control and leads you to sin, lose yourself or be filled with the Spirit that will actually help you Grab control of your sinful desires and lead you to righteousness. So instead of being under the influence of a substance, we're supposed to be under the, under the influence of the Holy Spirit that will help us control our sinful desires and lead us to do the will of God, which is something we're going to need in marriage. And if you're married, you need to say amen and say, yes, I need the Holy Spirit. And this is the reason why it is so, uh, this is the reason why the Bible does not allow or prohibits the union between Christians and non-Christians. Because he assumes that both of these people require the help of a, of a superhuman help, of a super, superhuman power. And, and if you're not a believer, you don't have that power. So it's not even. And, and, and basically we could say, Marriage is a supernatural thing or requires supernatural strength. Angel just said it. He's been married here more than anyone else. So you're full of the spirit, Angel. Or Marisol, maybe, I don't know. All right, now that we know that we can't do this on our own, we need to remember, remember 
that Paul started in verse 21 by telling all of us that we all need to submit to one another. So, right off the bat, this is not only for the women or the child or the servant that are the relationships that Paul is going to cover. In fact, the umbrella command for everyone is submit to one another. Now, Paul is going to tell us, how does this look in different relationships? And what we can gather from here is that submitting in different relationships might look different. It's not everything the same. This terminology is used also in military language. And it's not the same as in the house. We cannot expect that just because Paul is using the same word, submit to one another, that we're going to take the hierarchy of a, of a military official and how he talks or how he treats the people under him. That is not the case. Submitting to one another is going to look different in different places. But the overall con uh, conception or description or definition of, of submission, Paul laid it out in Philippians 2, and we read it last week, and I will read it again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more, more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but, but also to the interests of others. So, we are all called to put our needs last and other people's first. To consider others as better and to prefer them, to not only look after our own interests. So that's what submitting looks like, okay? So that's the first thing I want to say uh, right off the bat. And before we jump in with talking to the wives and talking to the, to the husbands, I want to say something that's important for me. This section is challenging for me to preach, and it's probably going to be hard for some of us to hear as well. Like it or not, agreed or not, we all bring our culture, our experiences, our family background, our current situation into interpreting reality or even interpreting the word of God. I'm not saying that that's right. I'm saying that we just, we, that's what we do. So I want you to know where I come from, and I want to, I, I want to, I, I will end up making a confession, but it is not hard for me to take this as face value. The first time I read this chapter, it never raised any concerns. I never saw it as like conflicting or controversial. When I read that the husband is the head of the wife, I said, amen, that's, that's how it is. And let me just give you an example of that. So in Mexico, uh, in most Latin cultures, you get both last names. So my name is Jesus Rodriguez Ortiz. In America, I'm only Jesus Rodriguez. That's it. But in Mexico, it's both. And on the Ortiz family, which is my mom's side of the family, uh, my grandfather used to own a ranch. And he was a typical Pancho Villa-ish person that literally had his own horse, his own gun, and he would walk around the ranch with his servants around him, and they would cultivate agave. But there's an uh, alcoholic drink, and I'm not promoting it, even though it's good. Uh, um, <laughs> there's a, an alcoholic drink that's called pulque in Mexico, in the center part of Mexico, and it's made out of the agave. You can tell that we use agave for a lot of things, uh, but this is pulque, and they actually used to uh, cultivate it and create the drink and ship it to Mexico City, and this was in the outside of Mexico. And my grandfather on that side was a very wealthy man, 
and he had a ranch. He had several houses in Mexico. I grew up in one of those houses. And every time the whole family gathered, somebody would say, most, most of the times, one of my aunts, tu abuelito llegó, your grandpa arrived. And everybody knew that all the kids needed to line up at the door. And all the adults went outside to greet him. And not just to greet him. We needed to kiss his hand and kiss his cheek in a line. And you never talked to your grandpa. He was the figure of the family. There was this huge long table in, in, inside the house. And his spot was the spot at the end of the table. I grew up in this context. I never saw anything different in my family. And my other side of the family was not like that. But I assumed that the, the husband was the head of the house. My family was like that. I grew up in this culture. It's, this was normal to me. And then I moved on to marry Carla. And Carla grew up in a similar situation as a Hispanic. She also grew up in a house where, where her dad was the head of the house. And uh, that was an advantage for me in our marriage. Yet he, he grew up in America. So uh, that posed some challenges. And that's when I, my perception began to be challenged on what it meant to be a husband. Because as a Salvadorian woman, uh, she was not submitting as I thought submitting was supposed to happen. Uh, and she had some ideals that in my culture were very liberal and progressive because we always saw the Americans as like, oh, those guys don't, they're just losing everything about family and they don't know what values are. So that was my impression. So I, I'm telling you this because I want you to know that initially for me, and this is something that I struggle with, it is hard to be sometimes sensitive towards a different culture. And it is hard for me to be sensitive towards the view of the minority or the women. Yet, I have come to realize a lot of things, and God is teaching me a lot of things through the gospel. But I want you to know that I have to be careful with my own machismo, which exists in my family and in myself. And um, we're all going to end up in different places. We're all going to end up in different beliefs, and I want you to know that it's okay to disagree with me, and it's okay to disagree with my perspective, and we want to be faithful to Scripture, but I know that even with that, people arrive at different conclusions. With all this said, as a church, we've, we hold to a specific view on this, and it's complementarianism, or the complementarian view of Scripture, and in, in a few sentences, this means that men and women are created equal, they're equal in dignity, quality, importance, values, giftings. In every single way, men and women were created equally. Yet, they are distinct in the roles that God has assigned them to do in church and family. Their roles and gifts do not compete with each other, but rather complement each other. And the husband has been appointed as the servant leader or the head of the household and responsible for his wife and his children before God. And we'll talk about that more later. There's also another position, which is the egalitarian position. And the egalitarian position would, would affirm the same, that men and women were created in the same way, but there are no distinct roles. 
Both roles could be applied equally to men and women. So, with that, let me come and say humbly what I believe the Bible talks about when it comes to men and women. Paul opens up this section by talking to their wives. And he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the, the overall theme here is submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ or as we submit to God. And I want to remind you of something I said and Paul has been saying. We are not called as Christians to submit to God out of pure law. We are not supposed to submit to God now just because that's the rule and you shut up. That is not what the Bible tells us. When the Bible talks about submitting to God and the church to Christ, is not a rule to be followed because if you don't follow this rule, you're going to hell. It is a response to how God treats us and what God does for us that moves us and leads us to submit in love to Jesus. That is exactly what Paul has in mind. If you notice, Paul has been nailing down constantly that we are to do everything we're going to do because of Jesus, because of how he died for us, because we were dead and he brought us to life, because he treated us with grace, because he overlooked our sins, because he predestined us from the foundation of the world, because he loved us, because he is great in mercy. That's why we are called to submit to God out of love, in response to that love. And this is exactly what God, what Paul is saying and doing here. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Or wives, submit to, to your husband just the way that the church submits to Christ. Means respond in love to the love of your husband. What this is not saying is that you should have total obedience Total, total subjection to another man. That is not what the Bible says. And I want to acknowledge that this text has been misused and abused for ages to suppress and oppress women. But that is not what the Bible is saying. The, the love or the submission that Paul calls the wife to do or to enact is a reaction to love. Just like in the gospel, the church submits to Jesus because of Jesus' love and sacrifice. The church is unable to submit to Jesus without his love. In fact, without the love of Jesus and without the initiative of Jesus, we rejected God. The submission from the wife to the husband should be out of the sacrificial love that the husband shows in response to the sacrificial love of the husband. We only owe total subjection and obedience to God. But even yet, 
We owe it to him because of the love that he's shown us. So this is a voluntary act of giving yourself up because of the love that has been shown to you. This is relational. And yes, I want to clarify something. The husband is called the head of the, of the house. This is something that applies to the church as well. And Paul has utilized this, this, this word head three times already in the, in the book of Ephesians. And in every single time, it has been applied to Jesus as the foundation of the church or as the leader of the church. But again, even though this might carry connotations of leadership, it's not the leadership that you think of when it comes to your workplace or when it comes to society or when it comes to government. It's not the same thing. It is a Christ-like leadership that is expressed in service and love and sacrifice to others. So, it is out of being a servant. So the wife submits to the husband out of love to his husband. And this is important to note. What else is Paul not saying? Nothing in this text hints or talks about women not working or women only uh, responsible for the kitchen or only responsible for cleaning. That is nowhere to be found in this section or basically I would say not even in scripture. In fact, if you want to see a picture of a woman of God that's described in Proverbs 31, you will see a hardworking, high-earning woman that also helps his, her, her husband. So this idea that women belong to in the kitchen or women are only supposed to have kids, it's not biblical, especially in light of the New Testament. This does not also say that the husband is the boss or that you should do what your husband tells you as if he's your boss. He's not your boss. He is a servant leader of your family. But I think that the core of this and the reason why this is so controversial today is because we tend to see everything in practical ways. We tend to filter everything in functional ways. And we immediately, when we see texts like this, we immediately think or ask, what is my place? What is it that I need to do? And this is very typical in American culture. We have to see what needs to be done and how do we achieve what needs to be done in, a more, in the most effective way. And our questions are like, okay, who am I? What role do I play in this whole community? What are the pieces of this machine so that we can achieve what we need to achieve? And how can we do it in the best way possible? But I highly doubt that that's exactly what God is trying to do or how God thinks in general. God is not someone who needs to achieve anything. He doesn't need to prove anything to anyone. He could live by himself happily forever without any of us. We are not tools for something that God developed in his brain. And if we don't do it exactly how he wants, we're going to mess up his plan. That is not how we work. That is not how God works. God acts because of love, because of his glory. He acts because of himself. And we tend to see this or filter this as if we're tools to achieve some, some goal. 
And we actually have made the family and the church as tools to achieve purposes or goals. Now, I'm not saying that we should not achieve any goals, but that is not the, the heart before, be, uh, be underneath this. God did not create people to accomplish something. God created people that carry his image, persons that carry his own image, and people to love. And Latin American theologian Samuel Escobar developed the, the name of affective infrastructure. And what he says is that in the two institutions that God established, the church and the family, the, the biggest purpose or what God is doing is creating relational ways so that we can experience God within each other or with each other. So he calls the church and the family effective in infrastructures. We are not called to achieve anything. That is not our primary purpose. Our primary purpose is to have a relationship with God and that relationship with others. So when we think of the family as like who is who, who is the boss, who is in charge, what do I need to do, how do we produce children that look like this, that is not necessarily God's purpose. We, it happens, we should think about it, but be, behind this there is an element of relationship that God wants for all of us to understand. We are an infrastructure of love, an effective infrastructure. And that's how we should continue to see this. So in other ways, what this text is talking about is how do we better love each other in the context of the church and in the family? And one of the ways is by submitting each other. How does this look like? Wife, respond to your husband by submitting to his love because he's loving you sacrificially just like the church does to Christ. I believe that this is freeing for women rather than oppressing And I believe this is important for us to do. I don't think Paul gives us specific examples. So I don't want to tell you, and I don't have to tell you, how does this look like when it comes to the dishes or laundry or work or kids or... Because he doesn't say that. And I think it's open-ended with a, with a purpose or with a reason. He gives us these large parameters to, to enact. So I want to say this again. Wives should submit to their husbands like Christ submits to the church. Now, Paul spent three verses talking to the women. And now he's about to spend eight verses talking to the men. And this is where it gets a little more fun. And I feel more free to speak. Because <laughs> my wife is sitting there and Salvadorian ladies always carry a machete with them. And I <laughs> better watch what I say. She told me not to say that. No, just kidding. She, she gave me permission. So husbands must also submit to their wives. That's what Paul said in the beginning, verse 21. We should all submit to one another. How does the husband's submission to the wife look like? He is very clear. Give yourself up for your wife. You, in, the, in this relationship, you're like Christ to the church. How did he act? He gave himself entirely and sacrificially for his wife. 
and to all of us men, as the husband and leaders and heads of our household, we should understand that Jesus laid out a very clear way of becoming a, a, a servant leader or a leader. And it's laid out in Mark 10. And he's talking to his disciples and he says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But, sit, but, you shall, but with you shall not be so, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then he refers to himself. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The model of what it means to be a husband is Jesus. What does it mean to be a husband? It's be like Jesus. And that is exactly also the same for the wife, because Jesus also submits to the Father. And all of it is done out of love. It's not out of duty. And before we spend two, time, two days talking about how the Christ loved the church, we, I just want to go through the list really quick and just give a few examples of what Paul means or what Paul calls us to do. Number one, the husband must give his entire life for his wife. Number two, the husband should deny himself and give himself to his wife. The husband should help the women or his wife in the process of sanctification, guiding his wife to know her, to know more of God, and to, the, to grow in, his, in her relationship with God. The husband should help the wife, through the word of God, leave, live a, a life of holiness. Then he gives us the example of the head, and he says, that we should love our wives as we love our body and we nourish her. I believe that the husband is the ultimate responsible to feed and provide for his family. It also protects her. I believe that the husband is also the ultimate in charge of protecting his family. I don't think it's, he's the only one or is exclusive to him, but I believe that is his responsibility. And he is the one in charge of caring overall for his family. The last thing that Paul says is, the man shall leave his mom and dad and cling to his wife and become one flesh. And when I preach this in Mexico, I needed to emphasize this because I don't know what it is in Latin American culture that men attach themselves to their moms so much that it's a problem. And I don't know if that's the case here, but just in case that is your problem, your wife is always before your mom, man. Your mom is completely secondary to your wife's desires, needs, and anything else. You are the one who's supposed to leave your mom and your dad and cling to your wife and become one flesh. So, what does this mean? That the calling on the man is more difficult, maybe, or, or more harsh. I don't think it's more difficult. It's probably harsher. The man is the one who carries the bigger and, and, and heavier load, I believe that. And I believe that the man in the house is the one that needs to take the biggest hits to avoid that for his family. We are called to suffer like Christ suffered. We are called to lead as servants just the way Christ led us through being servant. 
And we're called to leave behind our lives and give ourselves to our wives. This does not mean that because you are the man of the house, the head of the household, you are the boss or that you are the one that everyone needs to obey or that we should do whatever you say or, because that is not what the Bible says. I believe that the model that Paul is saying here is a marriage in which both of them love each other so well that they provoke submission between each other. So, I always like to end, and if you notice this, my sermons, by finding a way to tie whatever text we're preaching from to the gospel. And this is not hard to do in this text. The gospel is everywhere. And the gospel tells us two things. Number one, we are unable to do it on our own. We are not capable of living this way on our strength. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to understand the gospel. Without those two elements, it is impossible to stay married, married unless there's other alternative mo- motives, but not in this way. So the gospel tells us that even though we were sinners, God came and loved us. The gospel tells us that even though we were not perfect and we deserved to be punished in eternity because of our sin, God came and lived in, on our behalf, took the punishment on, his, on himself on the cross, and now provides eternal life for us. Not because we asked him for it, but because he wanted to do it for us. Jesus gave himself, himself up for us, and he has given us everything that we need. And now, because of that, and through that, we can do the same for our husband and for our wife. And if you're not a believer today, I want to invite you to consider that the invitation for eternal life, forgiveness of sin, is open to everyone. And Jesus wants you to come and experience this grace and this sacrificial love that he gives us every day. So what does this mean for people that do not fit the normal criteria? I believe that texts like this speak loudly to single moms or single dads, saying that in Jesus, you can find the perfect spouse. And that in Jesus, you can find everything you need. You get a humble servant who has already given his life for you. You will find a humble a person that cares for you. And I want to assure you that if you're a single mom, that God is with you, that Jesus is with you, that he will provide for you. And in the absence of a man or a woman in your life, God will supply and provide everything you need, that he will protect you, he will protect your children, and that he will love you like no one else will do, and that he's always there for you. If you are here and you are married to an unbeliever spouse, I also want to tell you that even though your situation might not be the ideal, Paul calls the, un- the, the people who are married to an unbeliever to try to remain married as possible. Yet, again, you will find in Jesus everything that you might not find in your spouse. He is your hope. He will provide for you. And that the gospel does not mean that it's only going to happen one day in Revelation 21 when you're done and you're dead. No. What the gospel means is that this 
Jesus lives with you, provides for you, and gives you all the love and security that you need now, today, and not just for you, but for your children as well. And if you are single, enjoy your singleness. Take advantage of it. But if you want to get married, you're doing a good thing. You're not obligated to marry. You're not obligated to have children. You're not obligated to do what everybody else does. But if you want to do it, you're looking to do something that's good. It's hard, but it's good. But through the Spirit, we can all do it. And that is important to note. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you because you are a good God and you have designed our families and our churches to express your love and to uh, provide opportunities to sacrifice ourselves for others. Lord, I pray that today you would guide us and that you would move us to be more like you, to submit to one another out of reverence to you to love each other in the same way that you have loved us. Lord, I pray for for all the wives here and all the women here. I pray that in response and in obedience to you, they would submit to their husbands with the help of your spirit. And I pray, Lord, today that for all the men here, that we would reject any abuses of authority or leadership in our families, and that we would completely give ourselves up to become servants, just in the same way that you were and you are a servant leader to us. Lord, I pray that our families would be healthy families. I pray for our children that you would also help them grow in a healthy family and that you would protect them if they are not in that situation. Thank you because you are enough for all of us in whatever situation we are. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that as a church, we would always be known for the love we have for you and for others, amongst ourselves and to the people outside. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.